Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 200. Today's big Bible question, how do Christians make decisions? Part two, how does God guide us? So hello, friends. Happy Wednesday to you. Today's readings include Joshua 22, Acts chapter 2, Jeremiah 11, and Matthew 25. Now, today is fake episode number 200 because, well, I I misnumbered one episode. I doubled up another episode, uh, splitting the reading and commentary into two episodes, but it was really just one day's worth. And I also made another mistake or two as well, since today is only day number 197 of the year, alas. We'll celebrate in a couple of days, if I remember correctly, but honestly, scheduling is not my superpower. Normally, here, we would focus today all of our attention on the move of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, but our church is about to kick off a series on the Holy Spirit beginning in Acts 2 this Sunday because we are following the Bible reading plan too, and I honestly don't want to be redundant with them. So, join us Sunday, if you're interested in that discussion, at our VBC Salinas live stream, uh, which is on Facebook, VBC Salinas, Valley Baptist Church of Salinas. And uh, today, we're going to continue our conversation from yesterday, how should Christians make decisions? Now, that was based on the very end of Acts chapter 1, where the disciples chose a replacement for Judas by casting lots. And we talked yesterday about whether it was appropriate to cast lots or not, or if there was a better way for Christians to make a decision. So, most people think the Christian view is that God has a specific will for every decision we face, and that he wants us to seek him until he reveals that will to us, and then that is the direction we go in. So, ultimately, this means that the Christian is not supposed to make decisions, but to seek God's hidden will until God chooses to make it known to us. So as an example, uh, let's consider two guys who are making a decision about what major they should have in college. Well, the traditional Christian understanding of decision-making is represented by Phil. Phil is a freshman in college. He doesn't know exactly what he wants to do when he grows up, and thus he doesn't know what his major should be. Phil prays and prays and prays and feels good about being a doctor, so he majors in biology. Unfortunately, one year in, it turns out that Phil doesn't actually enjoy biology classes nearly as much as he thought he would, and they're much harder than he thought they would be, and that makes Phil think that he, quote, missed God. So Phil prays and prays and prays again until he feels like he's heard direction from God, and then he chooses a new major. Now, that's sort of the traditional way of making decisions and discerning God's will, to pray until you feel led in a certain direction. Well, let's look at another way. Chavez has a similar situation. He's not sure exactly what he should focus on in college, so he begins by praying in earnest, and he asks God to lead him in the right direction. Chavez talks to his mom and dad to get their advice and also to a few trusted teachers and advisors. His father points out that Chavez is gifted at math and at drawing, so maybe he should consider a major in one of those areas. Chavez meets with a guidance counselor that he trusts and discovers that there are many majors suitable for people with giftings in drawing and math, including engineering, art, drafting, and accounting. Chavez researches those careers, but he doesn't find himself very interested in them. He wonders if there might be a career that would combine his love of drawing with his gifting at math. 
Asking around, he finds that architecture is a possibility, so he asks his parents and discovers that his mom has a friend who is an architect. His mom invites Chavez to lunch with her friend, and he asks that friend many questions about her career as an architect. Chavez then prays with his family, trusts in God's sovereign leadership, and makes the decision to major in architecture. Now, most Christians think that the fill way, the pray-until-you-feel-led way, is the Christian way to follow God's will, but I actually don't see hardly any instances of that way clearly outlined in the Bible. I actually think that Chavez is following the most biblical pattern there for decision-making. He prayed, he sought wise counsel, he gathered information, and then he trusted in God to guide his decision. So let's talk about three pictures of decision-making that we see in the Bible. Three patterns, because I'll just be honest with you, There is not a one-size-fits-all paradigm for how decisions are made in the Bible. Sometimes they happen in different ways. So let's take a look at some of those ways. Number one, sometimes, but rarely, God guides his people supernaturally and miraculously by clear and specific happenings or by direct and audible, sensible commands. For instance, Genesis 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Well, how did Abram make a decision to go from his land in his father's house? God told him, and Abram heard it with his ears. Or how about Acts 9, 10 through 16? There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. Here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarshish named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in, placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. Well, Ananias went and did what he was told. How did he make that decision? Did he pray about it until he felt led? No, God told him to go, and he went. You also see a similar miraculous leading of God in uh, Genesis 24, 42-49, where Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac. Isaac's uh, the servant prays for a sign. God gives him that exact sign he prays for, and therefore he knows that the woman he was looking for is the one that showed up in his specific sign prayer that he asked for. You can go read about it in Genesis 24, 42 through 49, or you can check it out on the BibleReadingPodcast.com where I posted that particular passage. But the bottom line is uh, Abraham's servant was led in his decision by the miraculous intervention of God. He essentially put out a fleece in much the same way that Gideon did in, uh, I think it's Judges chapter 6. So sometimes God leads his people by his voice or by miraculous and clear and specific happenings. That's way number one, that people in the Bible make a decision. Way number two, sometimes, again, but rarely, God guides his people in the Bible and, I believe, us today, by divine revelation, prophetic direction, or even a divine dream or vision. For instance, in Acts 16, verse 4, says this, 
As they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decision reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia and were prevented by the Holy Spirit from speaking the message in Asia. When they came to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So by passing Mycenae, they came down to Troas. During the night, a vision appeared to Paul. A Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to evangelize them. So we see here Paul and the apostolic team who had a close relationship with Jesus. They were not each day praying until God told them where to go. They were going and trusting God to lead them. Well, they went to Asia and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them go in. They tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus said no. They bypassed Messiah. Notice they didn't stop and grind everything to a halt and say, okay, we're going to pray until Jesus tells us what to do. They already knew what to do. They were called to take the gospel. They were on their mission. So they kept on their mission, trusting God to guide them. And in verse 9, a, a vision appears to Paul in a maybe a, a dream at night, something like that. A vision at night is what the Bible says. And they conclude from that that God is calling them to Macedonia. And that's where they go. That's an interesting pattern of decision making that happens there. And that's sometimes the way that it happens in the Bible. And if we don't include those uh, two categories above, the supernatural things that happen in the Bible, then we don't have a complete view of biblical guidance in Christian decision-making. However, it should be said that such instances as Abraham's servant and the vision of the man from Macedonia and God directly speaking to Abraham and call, Abram and calling him, those instances are rare even in the Bible. I believe the most common type of guidance and decision-making that happens in the Bible is that God calls his people to make wise decisions. For instance, Titus 3.12, Paul says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Acts 20, verse 16, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so he would not have to spend time in Asia because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem in if possible, for the day of Pentecost. Or Acts 15.24, we heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts. So we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul. How about 1 Corinthians 5.3? Paul says, I am absent in body but present in spirit and I have already decided about the one who has done this thing as though I were present. All of these decisions were made and the Bible never says that God told them what to decide. They made a decision trusting in God to lead them. I hope you get the nuance there. They didn't wait for a voice in their ear that said, Paul, go to Jerusalem now. Avoid Asia. They made a decision to do that, which was best in line with their current mission. How about Jesus' advice in Matthew 10, 9-14 to his disciples when he sends them out? He says, Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, no bag for your the journey, or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. 
Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Well, notice what Jesus tells them to do there. Go to a village, any village. He doesn't say pray about what village to go to. Just go to a village. When you're in that village, search for a worthy person and stay at their house. Don't wait for a feeling to tell you. Don't listen with your ears as hard as you can until your vo- you, you hear God say, that house on the right. No, Jesus just says, search for a worthy person and stay there until you leave. And what if the city is unwelcoming to the disciples? Should they pray until they have a peace about whether they should stay or leave, as, you know, Christian lingo goes? No, Jesus says, hey, if they don't welcome you or listen to your words, kick the dust off your feet and beat it. So that's how Christians usually made decisions. It's far more practical in the Bible than we tend to think it is. How about Second Chronicles 30, verse 22? Hezekiah encouraged all the Levites who performed skillfully before the Lord. They ate at the appointed festival for seven days, sacrificing fellowship offerings and giving thanks to Yahweh, the God of their ancestors. The whole congregation decided to observe seven more days, so they observed seven days with joy. We don't have any indication that God said to them, Hey, seven more days, guys. They just decided to keep doing it, and it was great. It was good. How about 2 Corinthians 9-7? Paul says, Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. Well, what's Paul saying? He's talking about giving. He's talking about the Corinthians giving. How much does he tell them to give? Does he tell them to listen until they hear, hear God impress the number on their heart. No, he says, decide in your heart how much you're going to give and don't do it reluctantly. Well, there's a decision there. One more, Acts 6 verse 5. There was a problem with food distribution that the apostles had to solve. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. We don't have any um, sense at all that in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit said, Look, it's Philip. Choose him and Prochorus and Nicanor. But don't choose Bill or Tom or Jason. You know, it doesn't say that. They just chose six guys who would be good for the job. They made a choice. The above decisions, all of the ones we just read about, were made in the Bible without any obvious, specific, secret guidance for God. The thing we rarely, if ever, find in the scripture is that people pray and then go in the direction they, quote, feel like God is telling them to go. Now, I'm not saying don't pray. I'm saying you don't rely on your feelings after you pray to point you in the right direction to go. For example, we never have a passage like this. And thus Daniel prayed for several days and nights until he felt like God told him what to do and who to marry. Well, you don't really see that kind of thing in Scripture. It appears that most, not all, just most, decisions in the Bible do not include obvious, specific, divine guidance. So if we want to make biblical decisions like the people in the Bible did, 
we will recognize that most, but not all, of our decisions will not be made because God told us specifically and exactly what to do by some sort of special revelation in our ears. Now, note, that does not mean that God doesn't guide us. He always guides us. He just doesn't always tell us what direction he's leading us in. For instance, Proverbs 16.9, we referred to it yesterday. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. So how do we make most decisions? And the answer is, we prayerfully make them with wisdom and counsel. We seek God throughout the process. We trust that he's guiding our decisions, whether he chooses to reveal his specific will or not. So what do we need? Well, we need wisdom. Proverbs 16 says, get wisdom. How much better it is than gold. Get understanding. It's preferable to silver. Well, how do we get wisdom? Well, we ask God and we trust him to give it to us because Jesus is the source of wisdom. Colossians 2, 1 through 3, Paul says, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So as a review from yesterday, five principles for decision-making that I believe that the Bible teaches and models. Number one, where God commands, we must obey. We don't have to wait for God to tell us, yes, don't lie. No, we just don't lie. We know we're not supposed to lie. We don't have to wait for God to tell us, Love the least of these. We just do it because we're supposed to. Where God commands, we must obey. Number two, where there is no command, God gives us the freedom to choose and sovereignly orchestrates and leads our choices for our ultimate good, his glory, and to accomplish his will. Number three, where there is no command, we follow the example of Jesus and we do devote significant time to praying, trusting that God will divinely lead us and lead our decision. Number four, Where there is no command, God calls us to seek wise counsel, walk in wisdom, and make a decision. Number five, when we have chosen what is moral and wise in accordance with the Bible, we trust the sovereign God to work all the details together for good. I think some of you, and me too in the past, have pushed so that we can feel like we've, quote, heard from God on a particular decision. Like, and I don't, I want to be clear. I believe God still speaks. I believe God still leads his people. But I will say, as you look in the Bible, it is rare that God directly tells people what to do on every decision. Instead, he creates us and calls us to ask for wisdom, to walk in wisdom, and to be people of the word so we can make wise decisions and God-honoring decisions in according in accordance with the leading of his word and spirit. Does he sometimes lead us supernaturally? I believe he does. Does he sometimes lead us by his spirit? Absolutely. But I believe we have liberty in the places where the Bible doesn't directly command us which way to go. And uh, where the Bible does command us, we got to walk in that way. Well, let's keep reading today. Joshua chapter 22, verse 1. Joshua summoned the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh and told them, You've done everything Moses, the Lord's servant, commanded you and have obeyed me in everything I commanded you. You have not deserted your brothers even once this whole time, but have carried out the requirement of the command of the Lord your God. Now that he has given your brothers rest, just as he promised them, return to your homes in your own land that Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you across the Jordan. Only carefully obey the command and instruction that Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you to love the Lord your God Walk in all his ways, keep his commands, be loyal to him, and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. 
Joshua blessed them and sent them on their way, and they went to their homes. Moses had given territory to half the tribe of Manasseh and Bashan, but Joshua had given territory to the other half with their brothers on the west side of the Jordan. When Joshua sent them to their homes and blessed them, he said, Return to your homes with great wealth, a huge number of cattle and silver, gold, bronze, iron, and a large quantity of clothing. Share the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. The Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in the land of Canaan to return to their own land of Gilead, which they took possession of according to the Lord's command through Moses. When they came to the region of the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh built a large impressive altar there by the Jordan. Then the Israelites heard it and said, Look, the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier land, a frontier of the land of Canaan at the region of the Jordan on the Israelite side. When the Israelites heard this, the entire Israelite community assembled at Shiloh to go to war against them. The Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. They sent ten leaders with him, one family leader for each tribe of Israel. All of them were heads of their ancestral families among the clans of Israel. They went to the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead and told them, This is what the Lord's entire community says. What is this treachery you have committed today against the God of Israel by turning away from the Lord and building an altar for yourselves so that you are in rebellion against the Lord today? Wasn't the iniquity of Peor, which brought a plague on the Lord's community, enough for us? We've not cleansed ourselves from it even to this day. And now would you turn away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the entire community of Israel. But if the land you possess is defiled, cross over to the land the Lord possesses where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession of it among us. But don't rebel against the Lord or against us by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Wasn't Achan son of Zerah unfaithful regarding what was set apart for destruction, bringing wrath on the entire community of Israel? He was not the only one who perished because of his iniquity. The Reubenites and Gadites and half the tribe of Manasseh answered the heads of the Israelite clans. The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows and may Israel know. Do not spare us today if it was in rebellion or treachery against the Lord that we have built for ourselves an altar to turn away from him. May the Lord himself hold us accountable if we intended to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings on it or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it. We actually did this from a specific concern that in the future, your descendants might say to our descendants, what relationship do you have with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between us and you descendants of Reuben and Gad. You have no share in the Lord. So your descendants may cause our descendants to stop fearing the Lord. Therefore, we said, let's take action and build an altar for ourselves, but not for burnt offering or sacrifice. Instead, it is to be a witness between us and between you and between the generations after us so that we may carry out the worship of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to our descendants, you have no share in the Lord. We thought that if they said this to us or to our generations in the future, we would reply, look at the replica of the Lord's altar that our ancestors made. 
not for burnt offering or sacrifice, but as a witness between us and you. We would never rebel against the Lord or turn away from Him today by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God, which is in front of His tabernacle. When the priest Phineas and the community leaders, the head of Is- the heads of Israel's clans who are with him, heard what the descendants of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. Phineas, son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the descendants of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is among us, because you have not committed this treachery against him. As a result, you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's power. Then the priest Phineas, son of Eleazar, and the leaders returned from the Reubenites and Gadites in the land of Gilead to the Israelites in the land of Canaan and brought back a report to them. The Israelites were pleased with the report and they blessed God. They spoke no more about going to war against them to ravage the land where the Reubenites and Gadites lived. So the Reubenites and Gadites named the altar. It is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all those who were speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But some sneered and said, They're drunk on new wine. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me in Hades, or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me, you will fill me with gladness in your presence." Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. 
Since he was a prophet, he knew what God that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from him the Father, the received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those being saved. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Listen to the words of this covenant and tell them to the men of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem. Tell them this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let a curse be on the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, which I commanded your ancestors when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the iron furnace. I declared, obey me and do everything that I command you, and you will be my people and I will be your God. In order to establish the oath, I swore to your ancestors to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is today. I answered, Amen, Lord. The Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Obey the words of this covenant and carry them out, for I strongly warned your ancestors when I brought them out of the land of Egypt until today, warning them time and time again, Obey me. Yet they would not obey or pay attention. Each one followed the stubbornness of his evil heart, so I brought on them all the curses of this covenant, because they had not done what I commanded them to do. The Lord said to me, A conspiracy has been discovered among the men of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem. They have returned to the iniquities of their ancestors who refused to obey my words and have followed other gods to worship them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah broke my covenant I made with their ancestors. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I am about to bring on them disaster that they cannot escape. They will cry out to me, but I will not hear them. Then the cities of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem will go out and cry to the gods they have been burning incense to, but they certainly will not save them in their time of disaster. Your gods are indeed as numerous as your cities, Judah, and the altars you have set up to shame, altars to burn, incense to Baal, as numerous as the streets of Jerusalem. As for you, do not pray for these people, do not raise up a cry or prayer on their behalf, 
for I will not be listening when they call out to me at the time of their disaster. What, what right does my beloved house to be in my beloved have to be in my house, having carried out so many evil schemes? Can holy meat prevent your disaster? So you can celebrate? The Lord named you a flourishing olive tree, beautiful with well-formed fruit. He has set fire to it, and its branches are consumed with the sound of a mighty tumult. The Lord of armies who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the disaster the house of Israel and the house of Judah brought on themselves when they angered me by burning incense to Baal. The Lord informed me, so I knew. Then you helped me to see their deeds, for I was like a docile lamb led to slaughter. I didn't know that they had devised plots against me. Let's destroy the tree with its fruit. Let's cut him off from the land of the living so that his name will no longer be remembered. But Lord of armies, who judges righteously, who tests heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them, for I have presented my case to you. Therefore, here's what the Lord says concerning concerning the people of Anathoth, who intend to take your life. They warn, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will certainly die at our hand. Therefore, this is what the Lord of armies says, I am about to punish them. The young men will die by the sword, their sons and daughters will die by famine. They will have no remnant, for I will bring disaster on the people of Anathoth in the year of their punishment. Matthew chapter 25 verse 1 At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them, but the wise ones took oil in their flask with their lamps. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the middle of the night, there was a shout, Here's the groom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. The wise one answered, No, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open for us. He replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore be alert, because you don't know the day or the hour. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on a journey. Immediately the man who had received five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the masters of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I have earned five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a harsh man, reaping where you uh, haven't sown and gathering where you uh, haven't scattered seed. So um, I was afraid and uh, went off and hmm, I, I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. His master replied to him, 
You evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed in the eternal fire Prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or without clothes, or sick, or in prison, and not help you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Lord, let us live and walk this lesson. Thank you for your word. Bless those who are listening today in Jesus' name. Godspeed.